Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate everybody tuning in. It means a lot that you take the time out of your day to listen to anything I have to say, so hopefully it's valuable and edifying and beneficial to you. Um, lately, I've been away from my little um, desk with my DIY setup. Uh, I've been doing a few interviews, which has been really, really fun. Uh, typically, I do just me speaking into a microphone by myself, but it was nice to have someone on the other end to uh, converse with. The first one that I did was with Dr. Stephen Britt, and we discussed the ontological and moral arguments for God's existence, and that was such a fun conversation. Um, I really like what he brought to the table there. And you could actually find that on Spotify, Podbean, uh, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, pretty much any streaming platform you can think of. Uh, it's available there, and it's in two parts, so you can find both parts. I also recently did an interview with one of my biggest role models ever, uh, Thomas Fretwell, and he's a theologian and apologist from England, and we discussed miracles, and that was incredibly fun, so I'm excited for you to hear that. That'll probably be out next week or the week after, potentially. But like I said, today we are back for our regularly scheduled programming, I guess, and we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 3 to start off. I think a good study of Genesis is really important. I find that the book of Genesis is probably one of the best to converse about, just because the velocity of narrative there is it's almost like a heart attack. Sometimes it's so fast and, and whole thousand year periods will be summed up in a sentence or two. And then sometimes that velocity of narrative will slow way down and become very meticulous and very detailed. And I think in that balance, it's just there's room for a lot of really interesting conversation. But today we're going to be specifically going to Genesis chapter three and reading about what most people call the fall of man. Um, and I, th I think the topic will make a little bit more sense as we go in. That's just where I want to start us off today. It's just uh, straight from the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, uh, reading in verse 1. So Genesis 3, 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I just want to pause there for a second. A lot of theologians will bring out the point um, that when it says, Has God indeed said, even though this isn't the initial uh, deception from Satan. This isn't the first lie recorded in the Bible. This is uh, the first questioning of God recorded in the Bible. Has God indeed said? And many people will go on to say that uh, it's up to us to uh, affirm the fact that God has indeed said. Obviously, Satan here is talking about something very specific, but has God indeed said? Meaning, has he actually spoken to you? And this question is repeated throughout history, but um, this is the first time it comes up to human beings, and we've almost questioned it ever since then. Has God indeed said, or how, has he inspired the Bible? Has he spoken to us through his word? And I don't know, I just, it's not really on topic of what we're going to be talking about today, but I find it interesting. Uh, we, we typically go straight for the deception part where he asks, or, or where he tells her that she will not die if she eats of the tree, but uh, th that part's pretty interesting as well. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Moving on then, in verse 2 it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat 
the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So that's all I really want to go through um, in, in that section. But I think when we study things like this, obviously it's a very familiar story, even um, outside of Christianity, people are familiar with this story, but we almost read it as if that's all it is, just a story. And it's singular, and it's interesting, but it's still just a story in our minds. But when we do in-depth Bible study, we need to make sure that we're not just reading, but we're actually studying. And I don't want to discount reading. I think reading can be very valuable. But when you're actually doing active study, you should be asking yourselves questions about what you read. And some of the questions that come to my mind when I read this little passage or this little story are things like, well, what exactly did they do wrong? What, what was Adam and Eve's sin here? Is it just doing something that God said not to do? Because we don't actually see a written command anywhere. Nowhere in the Ten Commandments does it say we're not supposed to eat of certain fruit. Nowhere in even the Levitical laws does it say we're not supposed to eat of certain fruit. Even in some of the Pharisaical laws that Jesus points out, who are very strict, there's no law concerning eating specific fruits. So why is this a problem? Is it just, like I said, because they did something that God said not to? Because if that's the case, it seems like a pretty harsh punishment for just that. The Bible is chock full of examples of people not doing what God told them they should do. But why, with Adam and Eve, is the punishment so strict? Why do we consider this a shift in the course of human history? I can think of examples like Joshua when they enter into Canaan. And he, at first, he leads the people well, he petitions God on their behalf and asks when they should attack, how they should attack, who they should attack, and God's with them and they're successful. But Joshua gets a little prideful and he attacks a place that he doesn't ask God's permission to attack or doesn't ask God's counsel on and he gets defeated. And he's so frustrated by this, he throws himself on the ground and he's, he's weeping to God, praying, why did this happen? And God's pretty harsh with him. He, he says, get up. And I think that's actually a funny section of scripture if you read it. Um, just God saying, get up, suck it up, stop crying to me about this. You knew what you did wrong. Um, but even so, yes, there's punishment for doing something God says not to do. And any transgression of the law is sin. But it still seems different. This, this story in Adam and Eve seems different than all the rest of the accounts in the Bible of people going against God's will. So I, I'm not recommending that we go against God's will because that's not sin. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm just asking what is the sin? Because it seems like there's something more here than just God said, don't eat this fruit. And then they did that. So, so what exactly is it? And some people believe that this is the start of what is called original sin, which gets passed on, at least in this doctrine, it gets passed on into all of mankind which means that we are all guilty of sin even before we're born. And then we're born needing to repent and are destined for destruction if we don't. 
And that, that's a pretty common belief in some branches of Christianity. And I'm not trying to stomp on your belief or anything. I'm not trying to show disrespect. There's just some things with that that I find a little bit problematic. For, for one, I think the, the biggest support for this belief is the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit paired with something that Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And I'm not going to turn there. I'll just kind of illustrate what he says. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19, Paul draws this parallelism between Adam and Christ, saying that through Adam, sin entered into the world, and through Christ, who is the second Adam, grace and eternal life enter more abundantly into the world. And that is kind of where this connection uh, starts to be formed in the minds of people. They say that sin entered the world through Adam. It didn't just enter into Adam, it entered into the world. And so we have some sort of guilt or uh, that sin is somehow on us. What's weird about this is that in this analogy, everyone understands or, or most Christians understand that we have to accept the grace and eternal life from Christ, but somehow the sin is thrust upon us through, for lack of a better word, spiritual genetics. And that, that just seems to break down the analogy a lot. And you might say, well, all analogies break down at a certain point. And that's true. However, to form a whole basis of doctrine on this, this one comparison that Paul makes seems uh, a little bit flimsy, I think, especially when considering that the, the initial uh, analogy between Adam and Christ with Adam sinning and Christ being the forgiveness of sins, that makes sense. But then if you take it even one step farther than that and show that, well, with Christ, he gives grace and eternal life. We have to accept that grace and eternal life. But then somehow with Adam, this is just put upon us and we don't really have a choice in the matter. It seems to just not hold up very well to scrutiny. And also it doesn't seem to hold up with our understanding of free will because God offers us two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And he asks us to choose life. He petitions us to choose life. And so it doesn't really make sense for God to give us a choice, understanding that, well, someone already chose death a long time ago for you. So it doesn't really matter. Yes, continue to choose life now, but the choice has already been made for you a long time ago. So this doesn't really seem to hold up to scrutiny, doesn't really seem to fit with what the scripture says, especially about things like free will. And I, I think if that's not the case, then we have to just ask ourselves, what is then going on? And I think the answer can be found in the fact that we sometimes ask the wrong question. We're always asking, are human beings or is human nature inherently evil or good? And those who say that Adam's original sin changed something and maybe his, like I said, spiritual genetics to then pass that guilt on to every person who ever existed, they would say that, well, now our human nature is evil and corrupt because of that act. But many who lean the opposite way and say that mankind is inherently good, they say, well, no, we're good because we've been created by a good God and we're made in his image. But this is kind of where the argument remains. But the reality is, I think we're asking the wrong question. And it reminds me of the Pharisees coming to Christ or the Sadducees or the scribes or the people in general. And they ask Christ a question that kind of pigeonholes him or is meant to pigeonhole him into this answer or this answer. And every time without fail, Christ gives a different answer that really gets to the root of the problem in these people's hearts or the root of the problem of the question. And I think we need to do that as well, because the reality is we shouldn't be asking questions about is human nature 
good or evil because we have the tendency to do both. We have the proclivity to do both. In reality, though, we are not inherently, as newborn babies, good or evil. We're just weak. And I think we see this in the story of this taking of the forbidden fruit. Eve and Adam do not take of the fruit until Satan's temptation comes in. So they live, um, we don't know how long, but they're living a godly life up until this point. And they are influenced by God up to that point. It's only when the serpent is introduced or Satan is introduced and Eve is tempted that she's deceived. But she's, and some people will look at that and say, well, no, it was uh, the desire for the fruit. It's, it was a desire for the attributes of the fruit. She wanted to be wise. She wanted knowledge of good and evil. She wanted to be like God. And I would say, yes, she did. But inherently, those things are not wrong. It's not It's not wrong for Eve to desire food or self-preservation. That's perfectly fine. Even enjoyment of life is good. It, it, the fruit looked good to Eve's eyes, and, and that's okay. But it's when the influence of Satan comes in that these things become self-serving only and self-loving only. And that's when things reach an imbalance. Um, to carry that on further, it's okay that Eve wanted to desire or that she did desire wisdom and that she desired knowledge. Solomon did that and that was okay. We're told to grow in grace and knowledge and that's okay. It's when we desire that apart from God that a problem comes in. That's where the sin lies. And then to take it even a step further, it's okay for Eve to desire to be like God. That's what Satan said would happen if she ate of the fruit. That even sounds tempting to me. I'm trying to be more and more like God every single day. More of him, less of me. More of his character, less of my character. So what exactly was wrong? We still have to continue to ask that question because her desires were perfectly natural. They were a part of her human existence to want self-preservation or enjoyment of life. She wanted wisdom, knowledge to be like, God, those are okay. Then if those are fine, what is wrong? I think the problem lies in this last one, desiring to be like God, because she wasn't taking steps to measure up to God, recognizing in humility that she was a lowly person with flaws. Instead, she was taking steps to equalize herself with God or exalt herself to be like God. And that was the temptation, her own way, her own decisions. And I think this is where we miss it. This is where it should go from a nice story in the Bible to something we need to practically be aware of for our own lives as well. Christ said that we need to love God with all that we are and that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. So it's okay to love yourself, but balance that with loving your neighbor and then balance both of those things with loving God and putting him first. The beautiful part of this is this works amazingly because God loves us. So loving yourself and loving your neighbor do show love to God. It's just that he has to come first. And he did not in the case of Adam and Eve. And this is what went wrong with them. When they ate the fruit, they were not just eating something they thought looked good. They were not just wanting to become wise and, and wanting to do right to be closer to God. They were choosing their own way and separating themselves from God. So not only is this what happened to them, this is also what has continued to go wrong throughout the entire span of human history. I think a lot of times we want to make this sin of Adam and Eve this very singular event 
that only happened once and it changed the course of human history. And I'm not going to say that it's not singular. It was the first time human beings had ever done this, but it wasn't even the first time it had ever happened. Outside of the human realm, this had already happened once before. So it wasn't singular in that it had never happened before. It was just, this is the first time human beings showed that they were capable of it. It also wasn't the last time human beings did it, and it will continue to not be the last time that human beings did it. So we're going to go through uh, some scriptures, kind of rapid fire. Don't want to take up too much time, but I think we need to look at these examples to realize that uh, Adam and Eve is not just a one-off story. This is what happens. This story should be monumental for us in understanding how we need to practically apply this to our lives, how we can be in danger of this sin of eating the fruit. And I think I'm hoping you follow the progression along with me. First, we'll start with the first time this sin is ever recorded. And that is in Isaiah 14, uh, verse 14. And this is with Satan. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the exact same sin that Eve partook of by eating that fruit. It's almost the same wording that is used when Satan tempts her by saying, you will be like God. He says, I will make myself like the most high. And that's what Eve was doing. She was not the first being in all of the universe to ever have this sin. Satan was first and then tempted her with that same exact thing. But so many times we'll stop there and say, all right, the fruit's done. Uh, Adam and Eve left the garden. And so that's not really of consequence anymore. But in the same exact book, Genesis chapter 11, uh, we have the Tower of Babel. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they were leaving God out of this equation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were raising this tower to exalt themselves up to heaven. They ate the fruit. This is the exact same sin perpetuated in mankind as Satan is allowed to influence us. So we're not, we're not bad people. We're not good people. We are neutral people, but we are weak. And we desperately need to cling close to God so that we take on more of his character and Satan flees from us and is um, less and less able to influence us in these ways. Then later on in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to 31, uh, you have the King Nebuchadnezzar, who seems almost for a minute to understand a bit about God, at least through the testimony of Daniel. But then things start to go well for him. His kingdom starts to prosper. And he looks around and says, look at what I have done. And in the same moment that he says that, God speaks to him and says that he's going to take it away. God says it's not going to last because he has exalted himself and not given credit to God. And within the hour, everything that God says comes to pass. Nebuchadnezzar becomes like a beast, losing the spirit in man, growing his nails long, his hair long, um, and wandering around like an animal for seven years. This is because King Nebuchadnezzar ate the same fruit. There might not have been a physical tree there with him, but he ate the same fruit. And you might be saying, okay, well, that was back in the day. You know, there were kingdoms, there were powers. This is, this is different. We're in modern time now. I hear that. But if you'll follow along my progression in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
And starting in verse 4, this is Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica. And actually, let's start in uh, verse 3. He's warning them, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this is Paul warning the Corinth or the sorry, the Thessalonians to watch out for people or a man in particular in prophecy that is going to do this at some point. This is not a sin that is restricted to the book of Genesis, and it's not a sin restricted to the Old Testament or even the times of the Bible in general. This is a sin that Paul says, look out for because someone will do this because this happens all throughout human history, past, present, and future. And you might say to yourself, okay, well, Micah, it might not be restricted to a time period, but it is restricted to evil people. Even Adam and Eve, although they might not have been strictly evil per se, they were the only ones, They and this was their test, so they, they had to fail it at some point. Because this sin is the one that was put before them as this litmus test for humanity, they failed it, so they had this evil within them. So it's just evil people or, or the most base people that could probably fall for this. Then I would take you to Numbers chapter 20. Because one of the best accounts of a person, uh, a friend of God, a servant of God, someone who emulates Christ himself. Numbers chapter 20, we have Moses who strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And then proclaims to the people of Israel, must we bring water forth from this rock? A lot of people mix this up. They say because he struck the rock, that's why Moses was un unable to enter the promised land. But that's absolutely not the case. It's because he ate the fruit. It wasn't the same physical fruit that Adam and Eve ate. It wasn't the same manifestation of fruit where Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself in pride over his kingdom. It was exalting himself to the level of being a miracle worker along with God rather than giving God that glory. And this caused Moses to not be able to enter the promised land. A good man, a servant of God, someone who spoke to God face to face, also ate of the fruit. So if you want to say that only evil people can do it, I'd point you to Moses and say, no, good people are just as susceptible because good or bad, we are all weak. We're asking the wrong questions again. In Job 20, uh, verses 4 through 7, one of Job's friends says to him, Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? So this is Job's friend telling him this has been going on since man was put on the earth. Not that one time that man was put on the earth with Adam and Eve, it's been going on since then. And then I think in the prophecy we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that it's going to continue on. For more proof of that, I would take you to Romans chapter 3 if you turn there, if you're following along in your Bible. If you're not, that's perfectly fine. I'm, I'm reading it, but um, I, I know some people like to. But in Romans 3, Paul is talking to churchgoers. Yes, churchgoers in a pagan city. Yes, churchgoers in... Uh, difficult times and with different temptations than we have now, but still people trying to draw close to God. And what he says to them is this, as it is written, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have to get together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. Deceit. Their poison, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no fear of God. And this is saying everyone. There is none good, none righteous, no, not one. We are all this. And this is Paul exhorting the brethren there in uh, Rome to watch out for this, to not be like this, to not fall for this same temptation that he knows men are susceptible to as long as Satan is able to influence us. I think he took this from uh, Psalm 14, I believe, but he makes the point here. This is something that can happen to you. He does the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10, If I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone would dispute it at this point, um, but maybe you could say, well, he's only talking to those people there at that time. Okay, well, here's him saying this pretty much the same thing to another church, um, or not the same thing. He's not, he's not in the same exact context, but he is warning them against this sin of eating the fruit. Second Corinthians 10, uh, starting in, let's say verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul is saying here, we have certain weapons from God. He has equipped us with certain things to withstand a lot of this stuff that we are going to face in our time. And we take Corinthians, we take Thessalonians and we say, how do we apply this to our lives? I think we can't say that if we're unwilling to admit that the sin of eating the fruit, which is the sin of exalting ourselves against God, which is our, the sin of turning from God and doing our own way, discerning our own way. It says that Adam and Eve saw that they were naked or they knew that they were naked. The word there is yada, and it means to know or to discern. So they were discerning their own way and they were choosing to act on it. They covered themselves with fig leaves. So they were essentially making themselves like God. This was the temptation. Eating the fruit is far more than just eating food or eating a specific food that God didn't want them to. It is representative of something much larger that we need to watch out for. If we think that fruit is just restricted to Genesis or just restricted to the Old Testament or just restricted to rulers or just restricted to evil people, I think we can see in this progression it's not. It is restricted to anyone who would exalt themselves against God, anyone with a weakness and ability to be influenced by Satan, and that includes everyone. I see so much pride in the world that we live in right now. I see a lot of pride in myself, in my friends, in every person, because we're all weak. We all have this tendency to exalt ourselves. We all have this tendency to be prideful and to reach uh, for the fulfillment of that pride or the, or the actualization of that pride. Whenever we allow Satan to tempt us, this is what's at stake. Are we eating the fruit today? Yes, Adam and Eve did it, and it is a great story, but it applies to our lives because we can eat the fruit even today, just as so many have in history, and so many will continue to do so. I think uh, Philippians chapter 2, 
and verse 3, what Paul says really speaks to the application of how we can change this or what we should be doing, what the better way is. Instead of eating the fruit, instead of exalting ourselves, he says this in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. If we know our place, if we're humble, if we know that we are no better than any other man, and we are especially no better than God, and we wait on his timing to exalt us when he wants us to be exalted, then we are so much closer to taking on his character and refusing to let Satan's character into us or to influence us, which is exactly what can happen if we don't realize that even though that physical tree is not here in front of us, every single person has the opportunity to take of that fruit and we have to stop. We have to stop. I hope this study has been a benefit for you as we look and think critically through this story of the initial sin of Adam and Eve of taking of that fruit. And I hope that we can now apply that section of scripture more closely to our lives and not just count it as a story that we can tell our kids or a story that we can say represents obeying God. Those are all true. Those are all good things. But there's so much more to this. There's so much deeper application if we think critically. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Continue to read your Bibles. Continue to think critically about them. And make sure you're not eating that fruit. Thanks, guys.